Hey everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of In Context Theology. Well, maybe not special because I think we might end up doing a lot more like these. What we were thinking is we have our long-form discussions, more get-into-the-weeds type things, but then we also want to do some shorter episodes for those of you with short attention spans or maybe you're doing your laundry while you listen to this and was a lighter week, you don't have as many socks, so that's what these episodes are going to be for. So what we thought we'd start off with was about seven or eight great Christian thinkers, and Lindley's put together uh, a brief summary of, of what they, uh, who they are, what they've done, and why that is important. And so our first week, we're going to start off with the Apostle Paul. You might have heard of him because he wrote most of the New Testament. And uh, Lindley wrote this, so he gets all credit for this episode. I'm just I'm just your, your late-night driving voice here to open things off. But I'm going to read this intro, and then Lindley's going to take it away. And we'll be doing some more of these um, as we move forward. So starting off with Paul, the great Christian thinker. In his epistle to the church at Philippi, Paul the Apostle describes his credentials as follows. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. And that is from Philippians. Yet on the way to Damascus, this Jewish zealot had an encounter that would forever change his life and impact the world. In Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, it says... As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Today's podcast will be on the Saul of Tarsus, who became more famously known as the Apostle Paul, the church's first notable missionary, the most prolific writer of the New Testament epistles, the first great shaper of the Christian thought, the establisher of a multiplicity of churches, the often attacked, beaten, shipwrecked, worshipped, imprisoned, and left for dead Jewish convert to the religion he zealously sought to eviscerate, Christianity. Okay, here's Lindley. We now begin our series of short podcasts. The goal is to be consumed in 15 minutes or less, while bringing to the forefront a person, place, or even a thing that has impacted Christianity. To kick things off, I will cover some great Christian thinkers. And for reference, I will be using a book by Hans Kung, a famous Catholic scholar, famous for reasons well beyond his Catholic faith. One could argue he is a a Protestant in sheep's clothing. Kung came along and was a rising star along with Joseph Ratzinger. Ratzinger later became Pope Benedict XVI. Kung would never get to that level, though Ratzinger did. Kung is well recognized though, even though he didn't ascend as Ratzinger did, he is well recognized by Catholics and Protestant intellectuals all over the world. I will use his list of great Christian thinkers. Now, of course, it is tempting to add a series of other great names, such as John the Apostle, his use of the term Logos, for example, which he borrowed from Philo of Alexandria, Tertullian, who was a literalist and a great apologist against the Gnostics, Athanasius, who fought for the Trinity against Arius, Pelagius, the foil to Augustine in moral theology, Gregory of Nicaea, significant contributions to the Nicene Creed, Zwingli, his view on the Eucharist, Soren Kierkegaard for his existentialist view of Christianity and the role of faith, Karl Rahner for his concept of the anonymous Christianity, and of course Alvin Plantinga, modern proofs for God's existence rooted in an argument from the existence of other minds. But most importantly, I generally like Kung's list, which will include the following intellectual heavyweights. Paul the Apostle, 
Origen, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Schleiermacher, and Bart. Now, I did some online research looking for books with similar titles. In many cases, they came up with a list of theologians, the odd philosopher. Many great religious people are listed, popes, bishops, pastors, and clergy of all sorts. But none of the lists gave me reason to throw out the ones that we have. Um, so we will stick with what we have. And I many thanks then to Kung and his wonderful little book. So let's begin with first on that list, St. Paul. I will be using the commonly held view of Paul. For those who are interested, there are some who would disagree with, the, with this image that I and the majority of, scholar, of scholars cast for Paul. Here I refer you to E.P. Saunders and N.T. Wright to name a couple of important figures, and they follow in something that's called the new perspective on Paul. I won't belabor the point here, but I generally disagree with these theologians, and I assume a more traditional view of Paul. Not that they don't shine a light on aspects of Paul. Rather, it feels a bit too much of an emphasis on a single aspect of Paul's persona. But it is worth reading these authors in order to get a broader view. I've done it. You should do it. So let's dive in. Let's talk about Paul. The exact dates of Paul's life are unknown. Our best guess has him being born around 4 or 5 AD and his martyrdom around 62 to 65 AD. Paul's conversion takes place around 35 AD and that sets the framework for our discussion. There are many good books describing the life and times of Paul, but our purpose is to illustrate his greatness as a Christian thinker and what his contribution is to Christian thought. Therefore, we will focus on his post-conversion experience. Some would argue that his background is critical for his contributions to Christianity, and others would argue that he had to leave it behind and leave behind this Judaism in order to become a Christian. Let's think, look at this. Nietzsche, for example, said that Paul is the real founder of Christianity. He scathingly called him the great falsifier, the disangelist as opposed to evangelist, a counterfeiter out of hatred, and many other nasty names. Well, so much for Nietzsche. Paul did not see himself nor his conversion as coming from human instruction, but he did see it as coming from God and a divine aspect. This was not his own self-understanding. It wasn't his own heroic effort. It was a divine. So, what is it about Paul? His attributes and his conversion to an experience with a living Christ and an experience on which he does not elaborate on. This was a revelation and a vision of the crucified one. Despite not knowing the full content of his conversion, we can't say that this individual was about to have a fundamental impact on Christianity and its subsequent impact on the Western world that was to come. His impact on the world in, in world history is indisputable. What was Paul responsible for? And what makes him a great thinker then? Fair question. Let's try and dig into that. Well, despite its universal monotheism, Hellenistic Judaism was making some minor headway amongst the Gentiles before Paul arrived on the scene. But what Paul was able to do, and neither rabbis nor prophets had done, was to disseminate belief in the one God of Israel all over the world. This was the main point as it relates to world history. Paul, who preached primarily to Jews, was mostly rejected by them. Opened, and this opened up access to Jewish belief in God for non-Jews and thus initiated the first paradigm shift in Christianity from Jewish Christianity to Hellenistic Gentile Christianity. This shift is crystallized at the Council of Jerusalem in 48 AD that Gentiles too can have access to the universal God of Israel and that they can do this without having to accept circumcision and the Jewish laws of cleanness, food regulations, and the Sabbath. It is now clear what Paul has done. 
He sets the foundation that one does not have to become a Jew before becoming a Christian. Without Paul, there is no transition from Jewish Hellenism to global Christianity. There is more than a Jewish sect located solely in Jerusalem. There is not a Catholic church. There is no East, no West. Christianity is not a world religion without Paul. Given the impact that Paul, what was Paul's intellectual impact though, which brought about this paradigm shift? What's quite astonishing about Paul's, about Paul's writings at large is that Paul seems less interested in the individual human, the church, or the history of salvation. Rather, he is all about Jesus Christ himself, crucified and risen. So while there's a high view of humanity in Paul's writings, the supreme center of all things is Jesus Christ, God through Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ to God. This is the primarily a Christocentric view. Christ is at the center. Profound indeed, given Paul is a Jew. It is not that Jews, Jesus is Jewish, but something much more transcendent. And I think we will see this later when we pick up um, some of the themes in Karl Barth's work. Paul is not a mystic or an enlightened sage. Rather, he falls in line with the prophetic tradition. He brings the message. He is a prophet in this sense. The story of the risen Savior. He is not a systematic theologian. His thought is usually system is systematized much later by the Lutheran and Reformed scholars. He is a missionary, writing in situations. He does not refer to some gospel accounts of Christ, but he does not repeat large swaths. He does refer to gospel accounts of Christ, but he does not repeat large swaths of the gospel accounts for apostolic validation. His mission is quite clear, and it comes from Christ himself. Let's consider from Bar from. Kung, seven key phrases are words that Paul uses in connection to Jesus Christ. The first one is kingdom of God. Paul, like all other early Christians, was eagerly awaiting the imminent return of Jesus. Paul sees Jesus' name as, the, as standing in for the kingdom of God. Two, sin. Paul does not speak of original sin as Augustine does, passed on through sexual transmission. By contrast, he speaks in theological terms of comparing the old Adam and the new Adam. This is a greater value as it puts the emphasis on Christ. 3. Conversion Paul saw humanity in crisis and needed to call on God. Repent all in an act of faith. The legalism of Jewish law or the intellectual speculation of the Greeks were are, and are wholly inadequate. 4. Revelation In light of the death and resurrection of Christ, we have a, a God of the living and not a God of the dead. The understanding is now made explicit in Paul's teaching on Jesus Christ. 5. Universalism While Paul sees Jesus opening up true universalism, it is accomplished in the preaching of the good news to Jews and Gentiles, hence Paul's mission. 6. Justification Paul presents the forgiveness of sins through sheer grace. The justification is not provided by the works of the law, but on the unconditional trust we call it faith, in the gracious and merciful God. Jesus was executed by the guardians of the law, and this exposes the negative side of the law. And number seven, love. Paul also proclaims the love of God and love of neighbor, like Christ did as an act in fulfillment of the law. Paul sees this as only possible as he reflects on the love of Christ in his activity of life, death, and resurrection. Paul the Jew is clear. That the new teaching is a new foundation based solely on Jesus the Christ of God. Christianity is not a Jewish sect 
or paradigm within Judaism. Rather, it is a different religion with roots in Judaism. To Paul, the Jewish cause is continued in the Christian cause. That is that God is for man. Paul's teaching on the law is nuanced, for sure. The law cannot be binding on the Gentiles, but what about the Jews who follow Christ? There too, Paul claimed Jesus ushered in a new world religion, and I cannot emphasize this enough, for it is a world religion and not a Jewish extension, and says that the same thing applies to the Jews. They must see the law differently. Paul is consistent in that the law, as in Torah, the law of God, is still valid as an expression of the will of God. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and the commandments are holy and just and good. The law is to lead people to life. An attempt that is. It is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. It is spiritual. Paul states that the Torah is not overthrown, rather it is upheld and established. What did Paul mean? It means that Paul's polemic is not directed to the law itself, but at the works of the law, against a righteousness from the law. So what does Paul mean when he says we are free? Tying these ideas together, it is now transparent and is now clear to us that we are not just free from the ethical demands of the Torah, but also free from the works of the law. This is an important point. For Paul, the demands of the Jewish way of life are not demanded on the Gentile Christians. The Sabbaths, the festivals, the washing, the commandments of purity, etc., they are not binding. For Jews, though, they can continue to have these cultural aspects of their life, but they are not salvific. Paul is essentially preaching what Jesus preached. Jesus did, Jesus did not speak out against the application of the law as performed by the Jews. He spoke out against the traditions of men, calling for a cleanness of heart and not external cleanliness only. Paul taught that, that being open to others, being there for others, unselfish love was central to the Christian life. This is what it means to be free, free from the burden of the law. So what was so what about Paul and his time? Well, he was a product of his time and culture, no doubt. He does not set out to alter the political landscape. This would include some of his remarks directed at women. But these are a function of how people will hear him. He is a brilliant tactician in this regards, since we can see his high praise for many women, the church in Rome, the church in Philippi, just to name a couple. He is not working from above, but working from the ground up. Also, early in his ministry, he is looking for the imminent return of Christ, and therefore his preference for remaining unmarried is purposed as such to help spread the gospel before Jesus' return. Paul encouraged us to be in the world. We are not told to run and hide. Asceticism is not a demand of any of Paul's writings. And we can experience the good things of this world, but we must never give ourselves wholly to them. Our lives belong to God, we belong to Christ, and all things are permissible, not, but not all things are healthy. And in typical Pauline fashion, he confronts us with the fact that we are in community and must always consider the impact to our brother. As for the Jews, how much better would things have been had the Jews who are the people of God performed the task originally handed to them? Paul makes no bones about it. The Jews were the people of God, the receivers of the law, the people of the promise, the holders of the covenant, the fathers of faith, the one who would bring about the Christ of God, etc. These are the chosen ones in that sense. According to Paul, any ministry which is in fact is performed for the building up of the community, whether it is permanent or not, private or public, and that is to the use of charisma church service and a concrete service it deserves and as a concrete service it deserves recognition and subordination
So any ministry, whether or not it is official, has authority in its own way if it is performed in love for the benefit of the community. And this, is, I think, is popular these days. It will not lead to confusion or disarray. If these gifts are operating in love and under the guidance of the Spirit, the signs of the community of the Spirit of God, which is identical with the Spirit of Jesus Christ, are not clerical supervision and are not spiritual dictatorship, but they are consideration, recognition, behavior and solidarity, collegial harmony, discussion, communication, and dialogue and partnership. So then, what about authority? Yes, there is authority, but Paul, who used authority to teach and to correct, also limits his own authority. He recognizes that the apostles are not the lords of faith, but those who contribute to the joy of community members. Rather, instead of issuing a prohibition, he appealed to people's own judgment and responsibility. Instead of exerting pressure, he wooed them. Instead of ordering them, he encouraged them. Instead of talking about you, quote-unquote, he talked about I, quote-unquote. Instead of inflicting punishment, he offered forgiveness. Instead of oppressing freedom, he challenged people to be free. It is possible to understand why Paul tested by suffering and militant, weak yet strong, was a great theologian, a great thinker, a great Christian thinker. It was because with body, soul, in pride and humility, he was utterly devoted to the Christian cause, the cause of Jesus Christ. His theology constantly admonishes us that it is not the apostle, whether Peter or Paul, who is Lord. Only Jesus is Lord, and this is Paul's ultimate confession. Paul, who shapes the church on many matters, is the first to say he has so much more to do, and therefore he presses on towards the prize, Jesus Christ.